Welcome back to the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. It's your delightful host, Sophia, and whether you're new to the show or a loyal listener, I'm thrilled to have you, and I'm honored that, of all the things you could be listening to right now, you chose to listen to me. It's an incredible honor, so thank you. Today is a cool episode because we will be talking about the power of objects, how they go from ordinary to exceptional, how they help us connect to the divine, connect to each other, and build peace in conflict communities. And so, you're probably thinking, today's guest must be exceptional as well, and you would be right. Their research is centered around the idea that religion is about bodies, not beliefs, and they investigate the ways people connect with physical objects through sense perception. In essence, the things we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch are what give us our spiritual dimension. So today's guest is uh, Professor S. Brent Rodriguez Plate, and they are a professor of religious studies at Hamilton College. They have authored or edited 15 books, contributed to various publications, and are active in several academic and editorial roles. Their courses include topics like religious diversity in the USA and the intersection of religion, art, and media. In addition to this, they hold a PhD from Emory University and have affiliations with numerous academic and religious organizations. Now, without further ado, let's get to the conversation. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is a Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today because I think that the the idea of like materiality in like religion and spirituality, it's um, not discussed very much. So I'm interested in exploring that more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, just to start with, um, in your book, A History of Religion and Five and a Half Objects, you argue that religion needs to be understood as deriving from human experiences with the material world. So could you just elaborate on why this is and how your study of religious objects kind of stems from that belief? Yeah. So I, you know, I, the idea is that um, in the modern world, we've thought of meaning as being this intellectual thing and primarily through, through words and through language and, you know, human, human bodies, we really, didn't necessarily evolve that way. It's not part of our structure to sort of spend so much time thinking about things and using language about things. So we're, you know, it's not that it's, there's anything necessarily wrong with thinking and nothing wrong with having words, but um, we tend to exclude a whole other realm of human life and experience. And those are the physical material uh, experiences that we have as as bodies that inhabit this world. Um, so our our engagement and this and this is very primary. I mean, we can see it in human uh, development uh, from childhood on. We we learn the through the world. We learn about the world through our senses, 
And so smelling and tasting and touching and feeling and uh, these kind of interior understandings, you know, babies will cry when, you know, they need their, their, their nappies changed and they'll cry when they're hungry and they sort of, they have this interior understanding of the world and they're, they understand they're uncomfortable with something and they need it to change. And of course they don't know what, what that is at that point. So they, so they cry, but it's a, but it's an interior, it's a, it's a bodily based feeling and all of our knowledge and understanding about the world is based on our bodily engagements with with the world and then we sort of get to abstract places and we begin to um, theorize about beliefs and we create these intimate uh, intricate uh, systems of knowledge through theology and philosophy and you know these are can be important things but we tend to then forget the very basis of everything that we've uh, we began with mm -hmm. Um, so the, the five and a half objects are, uh, stones, incense, drums, crosses, bread, and then the human bodies, the half objects. Um, how do these come to be regarded as sacred rather than just, um, like, just a stone. emotions? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the, that's really the, the question, right. That, uh, sort of um binds the binds the book together in in many ways uh on on one hand you know there's the maybe more obvious answer from a perspective of sociology and religious studies um going back to Emil Durkheim 100 years ago who talked about um the the importance of society is what makes something mm -hmm. sacred we we get together and we agree we, it's sort of a social contract. We agree that this thing is mm -hmm. sacred, that this thing is more important than other things. Um, so there's definitely that. So certain stones, certain drums, certain pieces of bread are sacred, while other stones and crosses and bread are not sacred. You know, we we make these uh, we, we make these distinctions socially. But I also think again, I and and going back, I, I want to sort of not again not say Durkheim is wrong on that, but but to say we were, that's only part of the story and maybe only half or a third of the story. Um, these things become sacred in part because our bodies can engage with them. They, they're sort of, they're predisposed to be sacred because of the way they look and taste and touch and smell. Um, they they appeal to our body, they appeal to our senses. And, our, and so our, our bodies are already triggered to respond in particular kinds of ways to particular objects so it in a in a sense you know Durkheim's right anything can be sacred but not everything is sacred on the other hand um there is something going on with certain kinds of objects that that you know people will talk about the they this spoke to me you know i i, I felt something some you know some sort of connection and mm -hmm. you know i'm not sure we can always put that into words and it doesn't have to be a mystical kind of thing we you know although it may be that but there's something very primary about the beating of a drum mm -hmm. um it it you know you, you feel it if whether it's a rock concert or a march or uh, you know, whatever it might be, drums have a deep power and they, they sort of resonate, you know, and of course through our ears, but also through our, through our body. So, you know, we're, we're going to be a little more predisposed to certain kind of drums and the, the beating of drums as having a power 
to them. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just that we get together and sort of say, oh, yeah, we're going to call that sacred. It's that there's this primary bodily experience mm-hmm. there. Um, so that's that's kind of really what I'm trying to get at is sort of this mm-hmm. uncover, uncapped other part mm-hmm. of, of, of religious yeah. life. And I guess like just to play devil's advocate, what would your response be to the people who um, who go, oh, you know, if you regard material objects as sacred, that's idolatry. What would the response be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, there, yeah, there's definitely, definitely plenty of that. I, I mean, I would sort of, you know, want to have a conversation most, almost every, you know, tradition that sort of suggested it, it does without these things, of course, has its own um, images, its own things that it uses. I mean, uh, you know, people... People have come to me and said, "Well, the Quakers, we don't use anything. We're, you know, or the or Zen Buddhists, you know, we're we're we don't have icons. We don't do all these kinds of things." And yet, if if you go to any decent Zen centers and temple, people are sitting in very particular ways. It's a very particularly con- architecturally constructed space that they're sitting in. Um, you know, the 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 posture of uh, is extremely important in something like Zen Buddhism. So you're, you know, you've got to have your hands in a certain way. You've got to have your legs in a certain way. Your your neck and your your eyes sort of half open. And you know, they're they're very precise about their physicality. Um, and uh, and indeed, you know, the history of Zen is certainly something that tells us there's a whole lot a whole lot of icons uh, in 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 a different kinds of way. They're not sort of they're not images necessarily of the Buddha, although that may figure in at times. They may be more abstract, mm-hmm. um, or something you know, like the the Quakers um, on in a in a kind of Christian um, scenario. The, the you know the Quakers tend to sort of think of themselves as not having any of these things, and they have these meeting houses without pulpits. But they also the, all their spaces are constructed. There's an architectural construction that is unique to them and uh, so they're always every we're all always using architecture buildings spaces um and and ultimately objects in certain ways just you know people the clothes we wear um Mm. and it's not you know of course i'm not saying stone every every religious institution uses stones and bread and drums um that that's Mm. uh, you know definitely not saying this is a universe these are universal objects but just interested in how many places stones, incense, drums, crosses, and bread do show up across religious mm-hmm. traditions. Other traditions have their own objects. There are other objects that are used. And across um, these like different traditions, are the is the symbolism is it pretty constant? What the what these things symbolize, or is it like like for example in Christianity where maybe the bread it symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ, whereas in another religion, the bread is like manna and it symbolizes something different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Yeah. No, I think that's the, that's where it, you know, begins to, you know, I think there's something very primary about some of these objects. And we, again, we see drums across many religious traditions around the world Mm -hmm. for, you know, thousands and thousands of years of human cultures. Um, But how that, how the you know and then it begins to sort of break up and that's where these kind of differences often you know are are regarded so what a drum might symbolize in a in a santeria um the ceremony would be very 
very different from what a drum would symbolize um, in in certain sort of you know East Asian traditions uh, in a Taoist or Buddhist kind of tradition. They're they're mm -hmm. different. The symbols, you know, in other words, the material object is similar, but the you know the meaning of it, and that and that's where mm -hmm. the kind of differences come. Um, yeah, come in. So lot lots of difference there, and th and that's the fun. You know, that's fun then to um, at least for <laughs> for me is you know to trace some of those things out. Why you know why does this mean this here and something else very different uh, over here? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, some of them things like stones. It has you know there's something. It's mm -hmm. no matter where you are, it's going to symbolize something solid, yeah. sort of long lasting. Um, you know, and so you find it you know, having these metaphorical symbolic dimensions that, that connect with its permanence, um, you know, it's, mm -hmm. we use stone for memorials, we use stones for headstones, you know, it's sort of um, around death, uh, especially, mm -hmm. so it's a, a, a yeah. things that last. Yeah. Memory, memory is often connected with stones in various ways, whereas bread, people don't attach, well, I mean, I guess in certain ways you could say, you know it's but it's mm -hmm. but it's, it's impermanent right the bread is meant to be eaten and then it disappears as bread whereas the stone stays permanent so they're you know i'm trying to play with the differences mm -hmm. permanence and impermanence in some of these objects too yeah and it definitely um at least from like the people i've talked to and the conversations i've had a lot of people definitely feel like they need that even people who are maybe like secular but still feels spiritual um they really need a lot of people really need feel like they need that kind of um physical connection whether it's like going out in nature and feeling like a, like a sense of the, the numinous right yeah um, yeah and yeah. yeah i'm just wondering like how do how do you create that type of connection because some people you know they they maybe don't feel as connected whereas other people might feel like a way deeper sense of connection by doing certain rituals or identifying with certain objects yeah yeah that's definitely definitely true um you know and that's where uh, oftentimes the kind of social dimensions come in um mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of uh, you know as you mentioned a lot of sort of spiritual but not religious is kind of this category um but if but of course if you talk to a lot of the people who say they're spiritual but not religious, they they say things you know very often like uh, you know nature. They talk about nature as mm -hmm. being sacred. They talk about you know watching a sunrise as being sacred. And so there's all of a sudden there's these tens of thousands of people who say they're not part of a creed, but everybody is saying, well, we like sunsets. So at some level, yeah. you're kind of you know, it, it kind of is a collective <laughs> creed that people are, you know, uh, affirming and believing in, mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, I think there's something, I, I am very interested in, you know, human evolution and uh, evolutionary biology and how this, you know, makes us, makes us who we are. It's not, uh, I've been studying culture my whole life, but uh, it's not just culture. It's, uh, there's these deep biological dimensions to who we are. And, you know, we, you know, there's reasons it's triggered, triggered responses. The sun gives us warmth. We, you know, it, it helps us grow our crops. Uh, we wouldn't be anywhere without the sun. So the, the, the sort of rising and setting of the sun becomes a very important 
part of human existence you know we, we, we wouldn't be human without the sun um obviously um we, we we couldn't be who we are without sort of an evolutionary standpoint without the sun mm-hmm. um so you know sort of something seems to be deep in our dna perhaps that uh, makes sunrises and sunsets very important to us mm-hmm. um it's you know I, I can't really prove that i'm not sure anybody could but uh it, it certainly yeah. makes sense you know at, at a certain yeah. level but yeah i guess like there's definitely a contrast between um this idea this kind of like age-old idea that the purpose of spirituality and divinity is like to separate yourself from the material world and to like rise above um, all the weaknesses of being in a physical body. And then this, this kind of contradictory just fact that um, when we experience something like profoundly beautiful, we do feel a sense of wonder and awe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like an interesting contradiction. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's an, that's, that's exactly it. It's an interesting contradiction. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so I, you know, part of my, you know, part of my purpose with sort of writing this book and, and you know, other work that I've, I've done is to sort of just remind us and say, hey, it's it's okay to like a sunset. It's okay to enjoy the feel of a stone, you know, it's okay to, mm-hmm. you know, have a, have a sensual, just enjoy this world, um, you know, and not, not, I think, you know, I think, I think, you know, uh, we could point to a lot of damaging dimensions to the ignoring of the material world towards something presumed to be somehow more spiritual because it's less material. I think that that binary between the the material and the spiritual is a really problematic one. Um, very much a modern very much a modern western construction i, I don't mm-hmm. you don't see it in most of the rest of the world it's it's uh, um it, it it aids in all kinds of um <clears throat> ideological uh elements that sort of support you know all, all kinds of things that i, I think is, yeah. is very problematic so um, mm-hmm. trying to remind us of the materiality of our spirituality that those yeah. two things are really disconnected from each other mm-hmm. Um, so how can, in terms of like applying the this study of like religious objects and this sense of connection to religious objects to building more peaceful societies, I suppose, how can, like what role do religious objects play in that, in conflict areas or in interpersonal relationships, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's such an important important part of all of this i think is that it 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 you know i'm very invested in kind of interreligious interfaith work and um i work with you know buddhist and muslims and christians and buddhist or in and and jews in the area here where i'm in U- in utica um new york yeah we're a we're a um refugee relocation center here and uh huge huge percentage of our population of the city is uh foreign born um and we we have you know it's a town of 60,000 people not a huge town but you know a decent sized city but we have five five mosques we have uh three vietnamese buddhist temples we have cambodian buddhist temples um we have um you know sort of a hindu society that's been sort of looking for a space 
uh, uh, Burmese Buddhist um, monasteries. Um, so a real, real variety j just here in this area. And so I've been working with a number of those groups uh, over the years. Um, you know, among other things, I mean, just as an example, one thing that we've done in the past and, and uh, didn't do it this year, but, but need to sort of think about this again, we have an interfaith Thanksgiving and uh, we'll have different, different groups bring some food that's from their own, you know, heritage yeah. in, in some kind of way. Maybe it has a religious significance, maybe it's more cultural, but um, so the Bosnian uh, Muslims will come and they'll bring a certain kind of bread. Uh, the Russian Jews will come and they'll bring a certain kind of, you know, dish. It's sort of a potluck, but, you know, sort of an intercultural potluck. And, and we had this, we had this, one of the things we did actually some years ago now, was, but actually was specifically about bread. And so different groups brought bread from their own you know, background, their own traditions, talked about how this was meaningful to them. Um, so it just really gets, you know, get get Jews, Muslims, Christians together in a room and share bread and talk about why this bread is meaningful to them. Um, but meanwhile, you're eating the bread, everyone's eating the bread, and we're all sort of agreeing that, you know, we like bread. <laughs> this is good. This is interesting. This tastes good. Uh, and then it's a very different kind of scenario than, getting a you know the what has kind of been the <laughs> sort of stereotypical and some, sometimes it still happens all the time you get the the uh the, the rabbi the, the the priest and the imam up on stage and they sit there and answer intellectual questions right what what do you you know what does god think about forgiveness and these very theologically abstract mm -hmm. ideas you know and and you know you, you can find commonalities there but it's just a very to, to eat bread together is mm -hmm. just totally changes the experience yeah. of people coming together. And so I think there's just ways to, you know, spin this out in all kinds of ways. Everybody brings their favorite stone. Um, you know, everybody, you know, has stones are, you know, one of these things across religious traditions, mm -hmm. across people who don't really think they're part of any religion. Um that mm -hmm. stones are, you know, people collect stones, they find them on beaches, they find them in the mountains, they, they've somehow interacted in various ways with stones. So, you know, have people come together and bring a stone that's been significant to them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, it, and the surprising thing is, you, it, it sounds like kind of a funny thing to say, but I, you know, you said that in a group of people, you'd have a, a surprising number of the people would actually say oh yeah i have my stone and you know once you sort of talk because you're not you're we're, we're told not mm -hmm. to talk about these things you know oh that seems superstitious or that seems sort of kind of funny but um mm -hmm. as I, pre I presented you know one of the fun things about writing a book like this is get invitations to to talk about it to different uh, places and mm -hmm. almost every time i've given a, a, a talk about it a lecture someone is someone is come up afterwards and said, oh, here's my stone. You know, this is I where, you know, it was a pendant around my neck or here's mm -hmm. my stone. It's, you know, always in my purse or, you know, just, just, just fun to hear everybody's stories of their own, their own stones. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it's, it's like about um, this kind of shared human connection with the material world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, we may symbolize these in different ways. One stone may be significant because it connected to 
you know, a loved one's death. Um, other mm -hmm. people might be some experience that happened when they were out hiking or at a beach or, you know, they, they, they're connected to different things. But the fact that there are these little objects that we carry with us as, you know, I, certainly it's about memory. It's about reminders, but mm -hmm. there's also kind of the ongoing ritual of, you know, sometimes touching the stone, sort of, you know, keeping in one's hands. People, you know, do this oftentimes. So mm -hmm. the, um, you know, they're, they're, it, it's a both both a symbol, symbolic experience and a deeply personal kind of sensual experience. Mm -hmm. Are there any examples from like the modern day where religious groups have used this kind of because um, obviously you mentioned the example with the bread. Are there any other examples? Uh, sorry, are other examples of, of... Of like religious groups using these kind of shared oh. um, material symbols. Oh, I see. To, to create this uh, like camaraderie, I, I suppose. Yeah, right. I mean, I think... Um... Yeah, I mean, I'm... that's a good, that's a good question. I'm not... I mean, certainly there's ways you can see um, people thinking about uh, incense or um, coming together with uh, with drums. I mean, you know, among other things, just drumming circles, you mm -hmm. know, people come together no matter what their kind of beliefs are or things. And they, you know, practice drumming together and, and mm -hmm. drumming circles are kind of a, uh, a way to, you know, once you sit around in a circle and people start start you know banging on their drums and get in a, a sync with each other and you know there, there's actually a scientific evidence that sort of suggests ways these drumming circles have um helped people with uh with everything from addiction to adhd to um other you know issues of memory loss and things like that that there's you know just this physical rhythmic experience with sitting with other people um that you know creates a creates a healing uh a, a healing event a healing experience uh for people mm -hmm. um and again it doesn't matter what everybody in that circle believes about the world or thinks about mm -hmm. gods or goddesses or or anything like that mm -hmm. it's just people sitting in a circle drumming together mm -hmm. um so there's there's great you know I, I think i quote a couple or note a couple of them in in my uh in my book but Mm -hmm. um, there's just been more and more kind of studies yeah. going on uh, along those lines mm -hmm. of healing of of uh, drum circles. Yeah, is there um, a way to kind of have the same effects on your own, like personally, or is this is that kind of experience something that uh, the, like the sense of wonder is to some extent part of it being in a communal setting? Yeah, I think it definitely, it definitely, I mean, there's something powerful about the community, right? And it's, it's right, that, that, that other object, the half object of the, of the human body, there's things that happens when human bodies get together, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're, whether they're playing drums or doing some other things or, or singing together, right? There's, mm -hmm. um, there's a, it, in, in, you know, it's shown up uh, in many places, but in, in London, there's a, um, um, what's his name, Elaine de Baton, um, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, kind of written several books about, you know, religion without God and very sort of promoting kind of an atheism. And yet they do these Sunday services in London 
and people come together and they sing songs together right and it's just it looks if you went in there and you look at it it look like looks like a church it's sunday morning there are people Mm -hmm. a bunch singing together or you know looking at a book uh, or looking at some sort of sheet of music and um and singing together so there's you know those kinds of experiences you know of of singing together that that are important and you know i think the, the the human body when bodies get together things happen uh as well that is unlike mm-hmm. you know the way we all felt during the covid pandemic we all had to stay separated <laughs> from each other um mm-hmm. that you know sort of shows the uh, the importance of the the human body as a, as a connecting point that's mm-hmm. both uh, it's communal something happens communally that does not happen when we're by ourselves yeah um, and uh, so that's, you know, something to you know, continually to think mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And that's an interesting point about um, like technology as well, uh, obviously continues to develop probably way faster than <laughs> human uh, biology right. developed. And that while, of course, we, we have, you know, Zoom and we've got all these like digital tools that there's still uh, an element that can't be replaced um, in terms of like the 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 material and the physical uh, as opposed to a screen yeah yeah and um, like how can people in the mo- in this kind of modern age of chat gpt and zoom how how can people how can people account for that um like still needing that physical connection to other people and and stuff yeah i mean i I think in in some ways it's still um you know i i do you know i I do worry i guess i should say about uh how you know the certain elements of um COVID and the pandemic came in and it made everybody think, oh, I could just work from home. I can just zoom in for all these things. And mm-hmm. it just is, as so many people I've communicated with um, over the past, um, you know, year or two, um, you know, continue to say it's, it just, we don't get as much done by Zoom as we would sitting face to face. And mm-hmm. so I, I or I'm executive director of a nonprofit and we had, we, uh, I met with the executive committee a few weeks ago we all we all traveled to new york city where none of us live in new york city we all traveled there we found a place to you know sort of spend literally eight eight hours on one saturday together just Mm -hmm. redefining some of the work we're doing our mission statement things like that and we you know just the fact that we were together we got incredible amounts of work done just because we're face to face and our you know, our, 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 we're speaking to each other as we would on Zoom, but there's just so much that happens in body language in kind of a more of a back and forth that's possible in ways that, mm-hmm. you know, Zoom, you know, we've all been on Zoom with you know, multiple faces around our yeah. screens and, you know, it, it's, you can't really focus on anyone and someone's trying to talk, but then another person's trying to talk and it, it there's, mm-hmm. there's not the same cues. We're not, you know, we haven't really evolved to, uh, to 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 communicate freely on mm-hmm. on something like zoom um it's a, it's a good stopgap for for many things i don't want to you know uh totally bash it because it, it has helped in, in many things but um i think for so many of us too it's just we realize that it just is not 
a good substitute for the, the mm-hmm. kind of face-to-face encounter uh, and as much as we can be face-to-face it's going to be much uh, a much deeper mm-hmm. if more efficient conversation because again I, I think yeah point to human evolution and I this is the way we've evolved we evolved to sort of be together in small groups of people you know discussing mm-hmm. things and being together I you know I think that's why small mm-hmm. education you know classrooms work well for education mm-hmm. group of people yeah. together we're talking in a seminar setting um, are there any opportunities um, that technology offers in in terms of like sharing this um this sense of like connection with other people through these sacred objects yeah i i think so and and you know and and let's not forget that these little you know phones that we all have with us are are objects as well and Mm -hmm. we're communicating with these objects and Mm -hmm. you know i talk to my students about this you know a lot you know we we feel something right we're we're so used to having this little handheld object and it's important that it's handheld at you know the designers at at apple and uh, and the other corporations mm-hmm. were very clear about this it needs to fit and feel good in your hand um and i think that's you know really key to it 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 feels very personal it feels very intimate to the sense that we we sort of have a feeling right we get we get out of our our car we're walking somewhere and all of a sudden we feel like something's off and i realize oh I, my my phone is not <laughs> in my back pocket or my phone's not in my hand or my yeah. phone's not you know in my backpack it, like we have a sense just just a, a felt mm-hmm. sense that we're oh i forgot my phone um and it's you know so it's become part of us it's sort of a, it's a prosthetic device uh, that extends ourselves into the realm. So I, I would, you know, I'm really interested in some of the, some of the work that I'm doing now. Um, really interested in ways phones and other pieces of technology become mm-hmm. um, prosthetic devices. I mean, this is mm-hmm. Marshall McLuhan and others, you know, talked about this 50, 60 years ago. But our media are pros- mm-hmm. they they extend ourselves, extend our bodies more more specifically into the world around us, and they change our relationship with the world around us. So we, you know, who we are today um, is, you know, I think inarguably part and parcel of the phone of the, of the invention of the smartphone um, Mm -hmm. for so many societies. We, we have fundamentally changed as individuals, as societies, as families, because of this, this object. And, and ultimately it is an object that we're using. Um, Yeah you know, the high, the high tech stuff, uh, my, me being able to talk to you thousands of miles away right now yeah. is a product of technology. And that that's changing how we're doing this right now. This, mm-hmm. is, this is operating. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, but, but it's through a, through, through an object. I'm, I'm looking at my laptop computer on my desk right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't be talking to you without this object. That is the yeah. computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of uh, like peace building and like conflict resolution, are is there a way that people can manufacture these kinds of sacred objects, or is that something that it just takes thousands of years and it just is what it is? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know I've, I've seen this. I've, I've I've sort of worked with some people on kind of 
how we how we do this in the classroom, material objects in the classroom, and um, had a uh, colleague working in. Um, uh, they were up in where were they at? Uh, it, it, they were teaching in Scotland. I may be in the University of Glasgow and um, talking, working with students. And they would they they actually used my book as a uh, the five and a half objects book as a uh, textbook. But then this mm -hmm. this professor had students make things as part of the class, right? And they would mm -hmm. bring in objects and they would create their own objects and they would talk about these objects and sort of trying to sort of, you know, be very physical mm -hmm. person in the classroom, have a kind of experiential learning uh, dimension to it. Um, mm -hmm. But also they were, yeah, again, interacting, but they, but, but it was communal, right? There were several people in the classroom yeah. uh, working together and, you know, so I think there there are these kinds of um, creation, and, and I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm super thrilled that that my book is has you know in in I've heard some stories from various places that people have done similar kinds of things. It's what the book did was inspired them to go create something, mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah, you know, it's a, obviously there's other other books doing that as well, but mm -hmm. um, but it, but it's fun to be kind of part yeah. of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking even now like is is the creation of art does that kind of count as creating a sacred object yeah and then yeah and that's sort of where i you know really came to all this as a as someone who was studying art history mm -hmm. and um visual culture and thinking about how artworks you know operate in our lives and you mm -hmm. know we've got these sort of sequestered spaces we call galleries or museums and yeah walk in there and it's like oh i'm supposed to be seeing art now right and this sort of this <laughs> you know cordoned off set apart aspect of human life this is mm -hmm. the, this is the building that holds our artwork right whereas yeah. that building over there that holds our religion and that building over there that's our that's our postal service mm -hmm. that holds our money that's our bank you know this is mm -hmm. sort of thing about a town and all its buildings yeah. um but i but i art you know i'm just continued I mean, i'm teaching a class on religion and modern and contemporary art right now and you know really interested in that you know what what's mm -hmm. new what's coming out of the art world right now how is this you know challenging us i, mm -hmm. I mean i do think there's you know I, I i'm not sure i could define it but something might call a spiritual experience that people have in in you know in front of a beautiful artwork that may be in a museum yeah. maybe yeah. somewhere else um, but but art you know pushes us i think art is important uh, for human societies because it you know challenge it, it it takes everything we've felt and seen and heard and tasted and we we know these things about our bodies you know we go through life and it's like oh okay that tastes sour that tastes sweet i like the taste of these things i don't like the taste mm -hmm. of those things um but art what art does is it sort of plays with those preconceived um aesthetic encounters with things mm -hmm. and it pushes us it, it, it just sort of challenges uh, a little bit i mean i think some of the, the best artwork is the stuff that's taking us where we are now maybe culturally societally mm -hmm. um, politically religiously and it just pushes a little bit in, in one direction yeah so what if what if you tried this? What if you saw this? What if, you know, it can't go too far because then people don't, you know, then it's people kind of have a 
bad reaction to it in various ways. But if it's mm-hmm. it's just kind of the, the right balance somewhere in there between affirming who we are, but also pushing a little bit to the future, then I think that that's where we find the, the most interesting art these days. Yeah. And I, I suppose like even in um, a wider sense, you can even say the same thing for like music or uh, like food or like all these different things yeah. they kind of, they can they can reaffirm how we feel or what we experience but they can also challenge us yeah um and i suppose like for for religious objects or spiritual objects that maybe an individual might feel like uniquely connected to can um how how do things like that evolve over time and even now like for artwork uh, it used, I, if I'm not mistaken, it used to be that in European time, like back in the day, um, that artwork was kind of exclusively for religious, depicting religious um, type of images. And obviously now it's, it's no longer the case, but people still feel this kind of connection. Um, so yeah, what does that evolution look like? Yeah, no, I, I think that's... Um... You know, I think there's a lot, a lot to that, and and you know, some people have argued, mm-hmm. sort of, in art historical circles that you know there, there's no such thing as art until about 200 years ago. You know, it's a, it's a modern invention, um, and for that matter, so is religion. And um, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in if you're in university setting, every single kind of major concentration you might have is a made up thing of the past 200 years. It's, it's a product of a modern Western environment, right? There's no such thing as psychology. There's no such thing as biology. There's no such thing as sociology or economics. All these things are modern inventions. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, we, we take them and then we, you know, we, we sort of, learn about this category of existence, right? Religion as a category of existence, economics as a category of existence, art as a category of existence. And then we sort of project it onto the rest of the world and the past. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think rightly, a lot of people have said, this is anachronistic where, you know, you can't use the word religion as we understand it today to talk about the ancient Greeks or the ancient Chinese. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't work in the same way. Um, and I, you know, I think there's something to that, but what are we going to use, right? How, how are we going to understand history? A history itself is a, is a creation of the modern world. There's no such thing as the understanding of history uh, until a couple hundred years ago. It just did not, mm-hmm. it did not really exist. Yeah. Uh, chronicles and sort of things that sort of told one thing happened after another, but the creation of history as a category mm-hmm. of human life is, is yeah. a modern yeah and even um like the idea of of nature for example being this concept that is other than human beings and their kind of societal constructs even that is something that is something we've like an idea we've come up with to separate ourselves absolutely yeah (laughs) what is is the wild what is wilderness what is nature Mm -hmm. um yeah, they all have, a, you know, generally has some sort of uh, political motive to it as well, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm going to call this area the wilderness, because then I can just go and go into it and colonize it, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. the, the land where I live right now is uh, Oneida Indian 
uh, land. And, uh, you know, 300 years ago, this was, you know, pretty wooded, wooded area. And the sort of only humans around were the Oneida. Um, and, it, you know, and so when when white people came in to the area, they called it the wilderness. And that gave them the opportunity to sort of, you know, rearrange nature, <laughs> rearrange mm -hmm. the wilderness and uh, for, for their own benefits. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, important always to sort of remember the concepts. But then again, but that doesn't mean, you know, that's necessarily a, a, a bad that we, we, we humans also need categories. We, we, we operate. That's part of our cognitive function is to have categories mm -hmm. for, for existence. Um, so it doesn't, we, we can't, we can't actually work without categories either. So the, 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 you know, we need to, you know, part of, I think higher education, what we can be doing is, is helping us understand what categories we're using mm -hmm. um, for these, for these things. Again, that's very kind of intellectual, uh, and, and can be abstract, but, uh, also, I think part of what I was interested in with, with talking about objects and getting very sort of base, physical, material, sensual about our engagement with the world is, um, is to, is to re rethink some of the categories that we use to um, mm -hmm. you know, split between the material and the, and the, and the, and the spiritual, the spiritual and the material. Uh, to, to to rethink those categories and where where they where the limit is between them. Mm -hmm. And what about um, I guess like public versus private objects? Is that is there something to be said for religious objects and kind of spiritual sacred objects shouldn't only be reserved for private places, or is there potential for public objects um to help communities build peace and build camaraderie among each other yeah yeah no I, i'm a big fan of sort of public art and public art projects and, and think those are mm -hmm. they're very important um i mean there's no such thing as a perfect object that's gonna everyone's gonna agree oh this is mm -hmm. great let's all get together around this you know yeah but but the i think there's just some really important public art works mm -hmm. uh, over the years that have helped mm -hmm. stir some sort of um, work together. And, you know, and oftentimes mm -hmm. these are in the form of, you know, maybe gatherings and, and protests, you know, maybe in, in the middle of a protest and a, um, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of communal gathering, um, you know, someone brings a drum, someone brings a a speaker and sort of says things and people chant together um yeah. it's kind of you know very bodily movements that happen that are mm -hmm. you know ephemeral in the sense that yeah. you know an hour later it's gone uh but it is it has changed our sense of being together um with other people mm -hmm. and that's that's really you know i think key um to any kind of you know any kind of issue of uh working towards sort of peace and justice and, and working towards, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe, maybe unity. I'm not, I'm, I'm a little, sometimes I hesitate with the word unity because it, it usually means mm -hmm. people need to get together around, you know, some particular groups, ideas. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah. I, but you know, some sort of some sort of connection, interconnection between mm-hmm. individuals and between groups. Um, you know, again, the, the the things that can bring bodies together into spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, are, you know, I think are, are really important for how we um, operate in the world and, and figuring out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing um, that comes to mind that I suppose is a like a common challenge to like public objects having public objects and the one on is like the example of the the controversy that happened around uh statues of confederate generals for example in the south and where there were some people who they saw these statues and what they the feeling that it evoked in them was like this is my history this is someone um who was significant in the, my past history, and then other people they saw these statues and it was like representative of this really horrible, painful part of history. Right. And I can imagine that 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 must that must happen in other places too, and it's probably happened throughout history. So how is there a way to kind of navigate this and kind of m- make sure that this doesn't happen in certain communities where some people feel good about a public object and some people feel really attacked by the public object. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, near, nearby me here in uh, Syracuse, uh, in the middle of Syracuse was a statue of Columbus uh, that was put up, um, you know, hundred, I can't remember the date, but a hundred years ago. Um, and it was recently, last couple of years, taken down. Um, the, the mayor sort of heard there were a number of um, there, the, the Onondaga, um, the indigenous people of the area, the Onondaga, uh, protested and said, you know, Columbus stands for oppression, Colonial. uh, colonialism, uh, took our land, you know, stands for someone who ultimately led the way to taking our land. You know, Columbus never was in Syracuse, but um, making a monument to Columbus in the middle of Syracuse, you know, was a symbol of, of oppression. Um, and then, and then, sort of out of the conversation, um, a, a number of people. Um, so the, the the areas, the population is uh, dominated by Italian Americans. You know, people came to the United States in the nineteenth century. Um, uh, specifically, Italians came came here, settled in this area. And for them at the time, you know, the Italians were the ones who were oppressed uh, in mm-hmm. terms of the white community. They weren't considered, they weren't white people at the time. Uh, in the 19th and into the early 20th century, Italians were marginalized others. Um, white people were people from, you know, the UK and maybe Germany and couple other places but Italians were, were 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 an oppressed minority at the time so Columbus became the symbol for them to sort of say how they've overcome um oppression and in minoritized mm-hmm. status um so you know looking into that history sort of oh, okay you know you kind of understand it a little bit more um now hopefully we can collectively think about a better um example than columbus to put up there right so and and i think you know the other issue is that it become you know these columbus statues become Mm -hmm. sort of central i you know the it it shows the um you know the the incredible work of of italian americans is that they 
became, you know, they, they went from a minoritized status in the in the mid 19th century to a place that they could put up statues in the, you know, in the center of towns, you know, in the center of cities and yeah. statues to Columbus there. Um, you know, it happens, you know, throughout the, across the United States, certainly, as well as, you know, the places like um, um, Madrid, Spain, where I've lived for a, a few years, you know, there's, uh, you know, Plaza de Colón in, in the middle of Madrid and, you know, Columbus has a prominent place there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, I, I get the kind of argument that from the Italian Americans here who say, look, this is, this was our way to become something more than a, uh, you know, to, to make ourselves visible and mm-hmm. um, nonetheless, yeah. many of the, you know, Syracuse is kind of a good example because many of the Italian Americans, enough of them anyway, sort of realized, okay, this we we get it. <laughs> Here's the reason why we had it at the time, but we we get that this is a yeah. you know, we've learned over time, and they it, you know several groups of Italian Americans mm-hmm. sort of wrote letters and and sort of yeah agreed to the taking down of the Columbus statue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that a lot of uh, statues or paintings or memorials to particular people are can get kind of complicated because obviously no one is perfect everyone has some something that especially someone famous and someone who's done a lot of things probably got some controversial aspects to them so yeah 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 Yeah, so how can um go ahead I, i was gonna say how can people kind of apply this conversation after having listened to it, how can people apply this to their own lives or their own communities? Um, uh, well, I think, you know, I think partly it's, uh, there's a sense of learning and education that is important that um, people need to, y- you know, I, I think arguably Columbus was, you know, for example, Columbus was the wrong, the wrong thing to go to at the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yes, an Italian person who came to the Americas, certain kind of mythological, you know, significance there. But um, I think, you know, doing doing some more history and being more, you know, just simply aware of what this might mean to other groups certainly is, you know, they're, they're kind of this seems logical to to do that um but i also think there's there's ways to work towards um um kind of alternative you know i i think the old maybe the old days of the kind of monuments with the man on the horse are over you know um how do how do we create other spaces i mean you know sort of go back to um maya maya lynn the um architect designer who created the um vietnam veterans memorial in washington dc you know it's just really a a moving sort of space that doesn't that it's you know here's a wall with names sort of cut into the earth i mean it's really wonderfully minimalist um that that sort of gets to some of the some of the hurt and some of the you know overwhelmingness of the war and why this has been problematic um 
so I think, you know, I, I think there's something about maybe a, just a switch and even for the, for the artists, you know, to create spaces, create mm-hmm. things that are not so, yeah, I, I think, ab- I think there's, there's ways to go with abstraction, I guess is part of, part mm-hmm. of what I'm saying. There's a sort of put in a plea for abstraction mm-hmm. and non-objective kind of, uh, kind of works. I think so oftentimes those um, allow us to bring our own understandings of things whereas if it's just columbus or if it's just you know wh- whoever some you know uh mm-hmm. um you know general lee or somebody like that it's you you've got to sort of attribute certain symbolic to the, the symbolism is too high whereas if it's yeah. something a little more abstract i think we as viewers can enter into the space and um Mm-hmm. kind of remake it and make and make it our own make make find our own kind of uh, meaning within it mm-hmm. um so is are you ready for the quick fire questions uh i think so yeah so the first one is if you live to be 200 what's one thing you would do differently i would um, um i just just to clarify because someone else like ask me this it's 200 living to 200 but not like aging and being like really weak <laughs> right yeah assuming uh assuming something like that um um <clears throat> i would i would have di- <laughs> i would have discovered my body earlier <laughs> <laughs> a lot of why i'm writing about all this stuff is because i grew up in an environment that sort of taught me to sort of pretend bodies don't matter and materiality doesn't matter. It was all about the afterlife and things like that. And uh, mm-hmm. I wish I'd discovered that earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, what's one misconception about your your field or area of study that you would like to debunk? Uh, in, in religious studies where I am, I think the idea that, you know, religion is about belief in God. Uh, I, that would mm-hmm. definitely be the key thing that I would like to debunk that religion is much broader it's about bodies it's about communal experiences that people have Mm -hmm. together would you say that it's not like a binary yeah and that yeah and that these things flow together and that oftentimes Mm -hmm. uh, our theological abstract ideas are based on bodily experiences yeah um yeah um the next one is what's the worst advice you've been given <laughs> that was a hard one. Um, that I think that I should just keep going to school, <laughs> um, and I mean, and I mean that for sort of graduate. You know, I sort of uh, went to several colleges and then went to graduate school and then graduate school and graduate school. And um, and I and I, I don't disvalue my education. It was great. But um, the idea that I should just keep going because I was good at it. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the most underrated spiritual teaching you've come across? <laughs> I think um, I, I think some of the I don't, I, it's hard to say how much underrated it is, but some of the, maybe, maybe coming from the perspective of the United States, like I am, but, but thinking about some of the, um, 
Zen Buddhist, I'm really fascinated by Zen mm -hmm. Buddhist uh, kind of traditions and the kind of bodily ex experiences of those um, that I think the spiritual spiritual teachings that come in the form of of bodies and bodies being in certain places and doing certain things um, is a deeply important spiritual uh, mm -hmm. dimension that we we too quickly I, I think in the in the sort of United States and sort of European context we we, we think are um, you know spiritual is something what we think rather than you know what we do with our again what we mm -hmm. do with our bodies so something more zen buddhist traditions yeah um like orthopraxy right yeah. That, yeah 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 exactly um okay the last one is claire booth loose once told president kennedy a great man is one sentence what's your sentence um well, i'll give you my my mission my mission statement sentence is um okay. Ed, ed, educating for creative compassionate and critical citizens i like that <laughs> um yeah so that's all the questions thank you so much for joining me you're and so welcome your time um yeah i really appreciate it yep sounds mm -hmm. good well let me know if uh you know there's information you need around the edges as you get it get everything yeah. produced uh, so if, if people want to reach out to you or find out more about your work, where is a good place to find you? Yeah, you can go, um, you've got my email there, but you can go to my, my, uh, my website, um, uh, sbrentplate.net. Mm -hmm. So sbrentplate.net and, um, yeah, there should be a link for, uh, email there and things like that. Hey, it's me again. If you made it to the end and are sad it's over, don't worry. Yes, that conversation was cool, but the fun doesn't have to end there. If you are interested in reaching out to Professor Rodriguez Plate and checking out more of their work, then take a look at the show notes, where you will find email addresses, website links, and all sorts of other resources to begin your intellectual sleuthing. There, you will also find a link to the Green Also Green website and Instagram page. If you would like to stay updated on the Sustainable Spirit Podcast and Green Also Green, you can make sure to follow on Instagram and subscribe to the email newsletter, which is released once a month and will not clutter your inbox. I promise. I know how annoying that is, and I would never wish that upon you. Now, I have to ask you a special favor, because I know, obviously, that you are a special person because you're listening to my special podcast, and I know that... There aren't many of you out there. I would like to change that, and you can help me. The good news is that it won't be too hard. Just share this episode with two people. Just two. When you do, remind them how great they are, how much they mean to you, and that you think the world is better with them in it. It's probably true. Most people don't hear it enough, and I will get to share these conversations with even more pairs of ears. So, would you mind doing that for me? Because... It would make my day, and I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you, dear listener. If you want to otherwise support this podcast, you can leave a review, rating, or just recommend it to someone. It's still a young podcast in a world of much more seasoned podcasters than myself, so every single one of you out there listening, downloading, 
sharing, and spreading the word are making a difference and setting the trend. So thank you. That said, I can't wait to see you next episode. Until then, keep asking big questions with a big heart.